says, get that India, big boy. Good morning, it's Thursday, the 15th of October. Geez, I had to do a, a, a quick take on that one. I was looking at the calendar, I'm like, um, I'm Australian, not American, so it does go day, then month, not month, then day, because there aren't 15 months in the year. But I'm 4020, aka John, and yeah, here we are with uh, another podcast on the tip sheet. Join me as always is my good friend, 60s. 60s, mate, a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, mate. It's... It's great to be here again. Of course, this is normally the preview podcast that we've put into the final series in 2020, and it's the sort of podcast we've been doing with a special guest. But it's not a it's not a preview podcast this week. No, unfortunately, not. As we are well aware of by now, the Parramatta Eels uh, finished off their season with a loss to the South Sydney Rabbitohs. And yeah, so it means it's time to start doing some post-mortems, I suppose. Um, so on that note, um, let's get right into it. So it's with uh, the most bittersweet of feelings that we welcome back uh, our fantastic guest, Bernie Gurr. Bittersweet, obviously, because it is always awesome to have him on this show. But with the ill season wrapping up, uh, it's not the best uh, situation to have him here for. But speaking of that situation, we will get Bernie to be doing a review on the season for the Parramatta Eels. So welcome, Bernie. How you doing, mate? Morning, guys. I'm good. Thank you. It's sort of disappointed with the result, but, uh, you know, all in all, a good season. But obviously, there's some factors we'll talk about this morning. Exactly. Now, I don't want to put a 25 words or less stipulation on you, but um, let's do a quick review of the, the South Sydney, or lost the South Sydney Rabbitohs in the elimination final. Um, do you think this was a case of once again losing some key moments in the game, or is there a different overarching story to that game? No, I think if you look at most games, there's key moments, whether there's mistakes or great play by the other team or whatever. And there was certainly, again, like the game the previous week um, against the Storm, there were certain key moments that we just missed. Um, and it particularly happened in the second half. There wasn't many in the first half. And, you know, we had a drop ball that led to a try in the first half. That was, again, that's a moment. And the player involved there had an absolutely wonderful game, Hayes Dunster. Um, couldn't be happier that he had such a great game in such a tough environment for his debut. But there was a drop ball there, then we had a bad defensive read on the left side. So one thing compounded the other, and suddenly they had a try and they're up 8 0. So that's a moment. Then in the second half, of course, we had, you know, they scored. Um, we overchased on defense near our line for their first try. Um, one of our players, edge players, missed, missed the tackle on Reynolds for the second try to Murray. Um, off Mitch's penalty, we weren't. Missed penalty. We weren't good enough to defend that error, and we weren't aligned correctly. That's attention to detail. Um, Dylan. Then we had an intercept try against us. That's another moment. And of course, Cookie's try at the end, right at the end, that just ran the score up. That was basically came off a, you know, a, a chip and chase. Yeah, it was a hail mary play for Mitch. Yeah, <laughs> it just didn't work. Yeah. And, and you know, I'm not criticising any of the players in this. They were trying their hard out. I couldn't be happy with the effort. But again. You, you know, this is a brutal, ruthless competition, and you win all team. One of the teams is going to win or lose these big moments. I thought we, although we went into semi panic mode in the last fifteen minutes, we got a bit frantic with our lateral passing. We had a short kickoff. We had the chip and chase. There were, whereas with fifteen minutes to go, there was plenty of time there to keep building our game 
all we needed to do was get the next try. South maintained their composure. Even when they were down 8-18, I didn't think that they were losing their composure. So, you know, to get to 30-6 to six in the second half, that's just not going to get it done. You can't sugarcoat a bit of pill. That was very disappointing. That's obviously led to us going out in straight sets. Um, you know, and, and again, the better teams, they defend... They defend their errors and they defend where the other team gets possession. South had 55% of possession to 45 through the course of the game. So they had more ball and they're a very, very post attacking team. So, you know, when you add up the moments, the possession, not being able to defend that in the second half, albeit they got some weird and wacky tries in the second half, they still got them and they, they maintained their composure. Um, we didn't. We just we the first half was terrific by us, but South clearly um, maintained their composure, their resilience, and, and won the second half quite comfortably. Just on that, Bernie, uh, with regard to that panic mode that eventuated in the, the towards the end of the game, do you think that the Eels would have played that fifteen minutes any differently during the season? Compared to the finals, was it that pressure of the finals that brought that about? No, I don't. I, I honestly don't think it was. You know, we were we were doing well with the power game. Paulo powered through on the edge and gave it to Gutherson. Lane powered through on the left edge and gave it to Gutherson. We were doing well. We, there was no question our middles would had the ability, the capability to dominate that game. And and then we got a good set piece for Gutho's in a second try. My view is, and we spoke about this before the game, our middles, I thought, you know, Campbell, Gillard, Paulo Brown were fantastic. Really, really great. And I thought, we just needed to keep running hard, pushing up, supporting through the middle of Paulo, Campbell, Gillard and Brown. It would have opened up. And even if it didn't, you maintain good field position. And that's the definition of and pressure. And that's the definition of composure in, in the big moment. So I don't think that had an impact. Um in the last 15 minutes, I certainly think it did have an impact where, you know, they realised this was critical and, you know, short kickoffs, chip and chase, frantic lateral passing where there didn't seem a lot of structure to it. It was sort of, we'll spiral the ball around and something will happen. I don't think that that's, that didn't, I'd have kept, for the last 15 minutes, I'd have kept boring through um, that area 15 metres either side of the play, the ball with Paul Owen, Campbell, Gillard and Brown and, and pushed up and then it opened up on the edges then go there. So... Given that we've now bowed out in the second week of the finals for in the in the last three finals campaigns, did you see any similarity between bowing out at the same stage this year compared to the previous two campaigns? Look, I didn't really because you know every every semi-final campaign is a different set of games. Uh, the games take on their own personality. Like last year, we went out 32 nil in Melbourne. This time, we went out 38 24 at Bank West. And, you know, there's no question we had a, we played much better this year than we did last year. Um, the reality, though, is when you look at the playoff situation, we finished outside the top four again because we didn't make it to week three. So, whilst it's difficult to argue with, um, you know, the, you, you'd probably make a point that at this point in the year, the best four teams are left, albeit. You know, the Roosters, they had two close playoff losses and they're, they're going through the same post-mortems that we're going through of what happened at the back end of the year. Um, you know, it, it, it's all part of your development. I, I heard a, a St George supporter on the radio that said he, he was saying, Gee, I'd love to have the problems of Parramatta and the Roosters about being concerned about finishing third and fourth and, you know, now having to worry about a straight set exit from the playoffs. Um, 
So, you know, there's a perspective around this that, and I know the expectations were very high around Parramatta, but a lot of that was, you know, a lot of that's media driven and fans by definition are going to have high expectations. But, you know, we are still on, we're still on a journey here. And I still think we're on an upward trajectory and we'll talk more about where we're going in the future. But I still have a lot of confidence in, in our core roster. We'll talk more about the roster later. But look, it's the similarity is we've gone out in the second week. But, you know, it, the last four teams left are very, very good teams. It's hard to argue against them at this point in the season. Agreed. Uh, and yeah, it's a reflection of the, the strong finishes to the, the 2020 season as well, which is something that the Eels will need to fix, which we'll look at later. But let's switch the, uh, the scope from the micro to the macro and look at the uh, 2020 season on the whole. Uh, let's start with the positives. From the, the Parramatta Eels perspective, where do you think we succeeded the most and where do, like, where do we improve the most um, from that 19 to 20 season? Well, let's let's start with the basics. We finished third in a very very tough competition. You know, it was it was two weeks. We had it's eight weeks off, and then we had literally eighteen weeks straight plus two weeks of playoffs. That's twenty weeks straight. So for all the teams, it was a very tough comp. We finished third. Um, you are what your record says you are. We finished third in this competition. We're a very we're a very good team. Are we a premiership team? No, we're not yet. The other obvious thing was in 2020, we won 15 games and lost five in the regular season versus 14 and 10 last year. So we continue to improve. Um, it seemed that we took a much more deliberate approach to being tougher, more resilient and more defence-oriented into the season 2020. That was you know, clear from Brad's comments during the year. We went from the uh, ninth best... Um, sorry, the seventh best defensive team last year to the third. Now, when you do that, sometimes you drop the ball on the other side of the ball, which is the attack, and we went from the third best to the ninth best. So, you know, there's a, there's always that balance of getting your priorities right, right in how you prepare the football team. As we spoke about a couple of weeks ago, we went uh, in games decided by eight points or less, which usually is a good indicator of your ability to compete hard, have resilience in tight games, something the Parramatta does not have a reputation for historically. We won nine and lost two, and last year we won five and lost nine. So it was a, from that point of view, you can see some positives. Clearly, our record against top four teams in 2020, we were, I think, against top four teams. We won, this year we won three and lost one. Uh, last year we won three and lost two. Against top eight teams, we won five and lost three. And last year we won five and lost six. So we're doing, a little, again, gradual improvement against the better teams, which is usually a good indicator. Um, so it is slightly better. We beat some of the better teams. We beat Penrith. We beat Melbourne, albeit they were a little short on troops. We beat Canberra, who were at full strength. So it was still a good season. The expectations around Parramatta, as we talked about earlier, guys, they're always high very every year. It was uh, probably the first time in a long time. It was the second consecutive year of finals. Bit of a bit of a problem is that we bounced out of the block so well. You know, we were running first after round nine, and then we lost five of our last nine games. That's not going. That's not going to get the job done. In in the first, it, it was interesting too to look at the for and against. We ended up um, this year. We ended up sixth on the for for and against. Um, last year we ended. If you look at the net for and against, last year we ended up um, where were we fifth. So you know, roughly the same. The interesting thing was 
After nine rounds this year, we were leading the competition. Our for and against was 104, plus 114. By the time we got to the end of the year, we were plus 104. So we basically didn't improve our for and against in the last 11 games of the regular season. That's not that's not that's not the back half of the year form you want to be taking into the playoffs. Mm-hmm. And you know, we beat up on some of the easier teams. We beat up on Gold Coast, Brisbane, North Queensland, which is not unexpected. The better teams usually do. Roosters, Melbourne, they they do beat up on the on the teams. But um, so after round nine, our for and against was basically break even. So that shows that we we were really battling through the last half of the year, and luckily on a number of those tight games we won them, which in and of itself is a good sign. Um, I think some core players in our roster improved. I think if I look at players, you know, these players improved over the prior year, which is always, again, a good sign. It's the incremental improvement you want to see in players. Junior Paulo, Reed Marnie, Nathan Brown, Dylan Brown, Gutho improved, Stone, Murata Nakore, Oregon Fiducci, Andrew Davy. They all played, in my opinion, across the season better than they did last year. I thought our two recruits, Campbell Gillard and Madison, were good. So, when I look at this year at a macro level, the continued winning, the improved winning of games, it continues to build a winning culture. And, and there's an expectation then within the club and the playing group that we don't go to games hoping to win, we go to games expecting to win. So the expectations for success within the group have increased. I see improved leadership this year. I think Gutho's continued developers, not only the player, he's a great season, clearly our best player since Dornet medal winner, but he's improved as a leader. I think Paulo, Madison, Nathan Brown have contributed from a leadership point of view. Um, we continue to build and improve. I think in our preparation and the training, Mitchell Moses is a leader. Now, people outside the club wouldn't see that, but I'm sure you guys would recognise as far as, you know, calling plays, steering us around the field, being a good uh, trainer, etc. Mitchell, being a dominant player in our number seven, he's, he's probably demonstrated leadership capabilities in the preparation of our team and during certain games. So if I look at the macro, I think it's been a very solid season, disappointing end, but a real solid season and another building block in building us as being a consistent top four team, which gives you a very good chance there to buy for the title. Okay, so in describing this as the as uh, part of as the building blocks of our, our club improving, what does need to be done, in your opinion, for the team to take that next step of featuring in the big, bigger end of season games? Yeah, sure, and, and it is a it is a, a continued learning curve. Like Canberra, a couple of years ago, they were they were leading and fading in a lot of games. They were losing those games during the year. So they they've learned how to do, they've learned how to play play big games better and learn how to win playoff games better. Look, despite you know the disappointment, which is still raw around going out, um, I still have a great optimism around the group and the club. I spoke a couple of weeks ago about incremental growth and improvement. Um, I could make a case that outside of Blake Ferguson, who's at the back end of his career but still a good contributor, and Michael Jennings, and his future is clouded. But if you take those two out, if you look through our core 13 to 15 players, and we'll come to the 11 that are leaving, but our four 13 or 15 are staying, I could make a case for those players that their best football is in front of them. Now, that was that's part of the goal when you try and put a roster together, and that's part of the goal of what we tried to do. Is you've got the bulk of your players entering the sweet spots of their career. Now, that's very powerful 
when this happens collectively for a large number of players. I have no doubt any player you name in that top 13 to 15 players outside of Ferguson and Jennings, only because of their age, not because they're not playing well, only because of their age and what they've done in the past, I would argue that all the, that every other player in the team has an ability to, to improve. Now, that's a very good position to be in. Um, having said all that, there's going to need to be some changes. I think, you know, some principally around, you know, we have to continue to build our, our mental strength and our approach. Um, that builds team resilience. That helps you win key moments. I think tactically we've got to look at a few issues. Look, it's such a difficult job preparing an NRL team, but obviously, you know, our edge defense held up a lot better the other night, I thought, but that continues to need a bit of work. Maybe some tweaks in, in attack, uh, maybe a little more creative in, in attack. Our payout game is very good. You know, we're very good through the middle of the field. Our attack gets a bit inconsistent. Like, in certain games, like... In certain games we've won, we've spread the ball and looked very flamboyant. And in other games we've just basically done a lot of one-out running and hit-ups and pressure, 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 and eventually you fall over the line and you can build a win, particularly over the weaker team. So there's a bit some... We've shown we can attack in different ways, but I'm not sure there's a bit of inconsistency around our attack that needs a bit of work. Um, and again, just, you know, like all the good teams, you need to look at your attention to detail you know, your formations on attack and defence and, uh, as you know, a huge proponent and I think people underestimate the time spent to the kicking game, long kicking game, short kicking game, kick reception uh, from the other team, uh, kick receipt when we're putting attacking kicks, etc. So that's a, something that I think we could look at. And obviously, you know, the roster management, we've got to get the roster management right around these uh, role players and, and backup players that we bring into the club. We absolutely have to get that right to replace the 11 that are leaving. And also, you know, it's been a bit of a lost year in junior development, but as you guys know, I'm huge on, on making sure that we have a very strong junior nursery of players, whether those players are from our own junior league or whether we recruit them outside and then bring them through the developmental Parramatta system so that they're, so that they're comfortable in the Parramatta way of how we want to play football. Um, so we need to do some work. I'm not sure about our elite pathways at the moment because I'm not sure of the talent coming through because I'm not obviously part of it anymore, but... Given that we hopefully get the, the elite pathways back up and running next year, we have to have a huge focus on making sure we get those right and that we're bringing through the next the next phase of Murata Nakore's, Reed Marnie's, Hayes Dunster's, um, Ray Stone's, these players. We need to get that next wave coming through the Oregon Capucis. We need to make sure they come through. Now, I think just, uh, just before, uh, uh, if I can interrupt here, uh, John, uh, just on what you've said then, Bernie, it's my understanding is that we're about to have a very large group of the uh, young players who are coming through, who've come through the junior pathways who are going to be part of the pre-season coming up, a, a, a group that I would compare to, say, the group that came through with Dylan Brown, Oregon, Kafusi, Stefano, uh, Hayes, Ethan, uh, Kyle Schneider, all, all those that came through in that same year post-2018, we've got a similar size and talent group that are coming through and will be part of the NRL pre-season. Underneath that, I think, is where there is a, a, a it's critical that we then get right because uh, we've got that next little wave coming through and this breakthrough uh, COVID with the uh, complete interruption to the, the the grades below that is yeah it is going to be critical. 
yeah, and I'm not saying we don't have them or we're not giving it the emphasis because I know, <coughs> excuse me, I know Mark and Brad in, in the football department they're very they're very uh, focused on on junior development. So I, I have no problem with the focus. I'm just um, I guess I'm just re-emphasising the absolute importance of making sure we dedicate the resources to making sure that we crank up our junior development program again. And, you know, all clubs are in the same position, but we need to make sure that at Parramatta, with our opportunities, with our big junior league and our scale, that we take advantage of those to make sure that our elite pathways continue to function well. And I know Mark and Brad, the team, are very cognizant of that. And and I'd I'd love to I'd love to get you to quote something that you've said quite often about the core business of of our club, if you wouldn't mind, about what we yeah. always need to focus on. Absolutely. You know, the you know, the, the core business and, and look I've got a extensive business background in my you know, both here and, and overseas. But I've also got a, a hopefully a pretty strong football background. And, and my view when I first came into Parramatta, and they said it, and they probably got sick of me saying, is that never forget we're a football club. Our job here is to win football games at the NRL level, promote um, and develop players for our elite pathways to, our, uh, uh, to the NRL elite level. And thirdly, promote the participation of people in our junior league so the kids can go out, have some fun, learn the fundamentals, and really enjoy a great rugby league experience. Hopefully, then engaging them and their parents and their brothers and sisters with the Parramatta Real. So there's that participation level and the elite pathways level. But that's what I mean about never forget you're a football club. Football is the hub of what we do. The rest of it, which is very, very important, are the commercial side, the sponsorship, the media, the marketing, the events, the promotions, the digital, the legal, and all the other pieces. They're the spokes. But football is always the hub of your business. Now, you, you preempted this a little bit when your discussion about what needs to be done taking the next step. But um, if I'm not mistaken, Brad's in year seven now um, of, his, of his NRL coaching career. Do you see him as uh, still continuing to evolve as a head coach? And I suppose as a follow-up, um, if, if yes or no, where do you want to see him improve or, or take the next step as the head coach, as the figurehead of the club? Yeah, I think Brad's continued to, to improve his coaching. He's a smart guy. He's a good coach. He's a good person. Um, he's not going to be happy. He'll be very disappointed with the end of the season. Um, he'll be happy that we finish third, but he knows and he wants and he's desperate to make to get Parramatta a premiership. Um, you know, a general comment for all of us in management or leadership positions, we have to continue to evolve and learn. Um, and, you know, it, it takes me back to an ex-Paramatic coach, Terry Fernley, back in the 70s. Terry was, Terry was critical pre-Jack Gibson and actually in, in instilling in Parramatta a winning culture. Uh, back 100%. In the yep. Yep. His, his contribution has is, is been probably understated over the years, but Terry was a great guy, a smart guy. But he, I, I remember him being quoted once that said, you've got to do something new every year, whether that's you know a new, a new player, maybe a new coach, maybe changing up some training or methods. It doesn't have to be something super significant, but you've got to change something just to change it up, keep the players interested. So, you know, that comment has always stuck with me, which is why I look at a lot of the good clubs, the Melbournes and the Roosters and these clubs, they, they're always doing something different every year, whether it's a new player, a new method, a new emphasis or whatever. But when I look at Brad, I clearly think Brad's the right coach. You know, it's very easy in the, in the immediacy of the disappointment of losing to start looking at the head coach and some of your key players. That's that's very easy, but that doesn't that doesn't fix anything really. In my experience, that doesn't fix anything. If you look historically at clubs that 
chop and change coaches. It doesn't work. It absolutely yeah. does not work. And it's statistically proven it doesn't work. And, you know, I, you guys know I've got a very high opinion of Brad as a coach. I think he's the right coach. Um, as I said before, around 2021, so there's some tweaking we need to do around uh, some of the tactical and mental approaches. They're, they're tweaks. They're not. Brad is at a macro level, makes and continues to make a really big contribution to the continual improvement of our football club. So, yeah, look, he's. He's clearly the man for the head you, you make a great point about stagnation or trying to avoid stagnation, and it's something that I've agreed with watching not just the Paramount Eels and the NRL through my you know early 30s now through my um, career as a fan, but uh, the the roster churn or, or the coach churn in, in terms of like assistant coaches or specialist coaches, that's a fantastic point because you need to – you need to almost have that little reset every season, don't you, in order to stay hyper focused on the end, the end goal. You do, and let me let me be clear. I'm not saying we should make changes in coaches or you know or or you know senior players. I'm not I'm not saying that at all. What I'm saying is you need to that, there'll be a review done by Brad and the and Mark and the team around our football department and what they think. But, you know, I'm not close enough to it now to understand you know what what we're doing specifically in 2020 with our coaches and players and the roster management and the associated salary cap issues that go with that. I'm not close enough to it. My point is that you, you and, and Terry Fernley's point was you've got to freshen it up. Mm, it's, it yeah. mean, you know, you're not necessarily making huge, substantial changes. Exactly. You need to freshen something up. And I think, you know, with the 11 players going, we'll have some new players come in. Brad's a smart coach. He'll tweak things here and there. And I think that'll be, that, that'll be, that will contribute to us continuing to evolve. No, you, you framed it now, in, in Bernie, a much better way. <laughs> Bernie, you've, you've touched on a number of players in, in what you've said already. Can we get you to narrow down the, the players that really impressed you this year? Yeah, and I think it's, you know, it's, 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 you know, it's not difficult to identify the players that have had absolutely outstanding seasons and some have had solid seasons. Like the outstanding player, Gutho's had just a wonderful, wonderful season. Like, he's a very special individual. He uh, He's not the biggest, he's not the fastest, he's not the strongest, but between the years, I don't think I've, I've seen a number of competitive players over the years. And, um, I remember back to my days at the Roosters, Kevin Hastings was just the most competitive person um, Des Hazel, when he played, was a remarkably competitive player at Manly. Um, Gutho has that innate competitiveness, which at the end of the day, there's a reason they call it a competition. You have to compete. It's you against them. So Gutho was terrific. Although Junior Paul, I went to another level. Junior's 20, only 26, and he got the ultimate accolade the other day when uh, one of the commentators, might have been Curtis Sterling, suggested it was Arthur Beetson and the like. Well, I saw a lot of Arthur Beetson. I knew Arthur Beetson as a friend of mine. Um, he was the greatest sport, in my opinion, that's ever played the game. Um, and to be compared to him is very special for Junior. So I think he had a great year. I think Campbell Gillard was great. He came in and he added a presence. And I would suggest that our one-two punch with Paulo and Campbell Gillard was as good as any team in the league. Um, I think Nathan Brown had a really strong year. He had a couple of suspensions here and there. But I think his game's starting to evolve even more. Um, you know, he's fearless running. He's, he's a bit... Of, He's sort of like the energizer bunny of our Ford pack. He's a heartbeat. He's on and off the field. He gives them a lot of a lot of energy. Um, I still think there's room for improvement with Nathan, but he's a terrific player. He's now been picked in the Oregon squad. 
Now, this may sound funny, but I actually thought Michael Jennings had a great year. Um, you know, I know he's got this looming um, substance issue hovering over his head now, but if you look back at his body of work over the season on the field, Michael had a very, very good year, and he's also a, he's a, bit, he's a voice of reason out there because he's a very intelligent football IQ is very high, and I think in many cases that's assisted not only Michael Sebo, but Sean Lane and Dylan Brown defending inside him as well. So, look, other players that I think have been had real solid years, I think Dylan Brown's continued his evolve, evolving. Very difficult. He was in the second year, Dylan, but I don't think he fell victim to the second year syndrome. I think he played really well, and I see him growing even more. Reed Marnie continued to develop. Um, and again, I thought Madison coming in was a, a really good addition to the squad. Um, so, yeah, look, I think there's a number of players that continue to develop. And that's what you're looking for. You're looking for the continued development improvement of players. Andrew Davey had a good, um, you know, coming off the bench at the start of the year. I, I thought Andrew might have been one or two off the bench, but he ended up, you know, playing even better than I thought he did. And he's a great young kid, and I'm glad he played well, and I'm disappointed he's leaving. On the flip side, uh, with a more negative scope to this, uh, which players do you want to see more from next year based on their body of work this year? Who left mid on the bones, in your opinion? Um, yeah, that's a difficult one. Because, you know, I, I don't like in, getting into the business of being hypercritical of mm. players, but um, if you look at 19 versus 20 as a factor, and the other factor is that you, when you know their their capabilities that they have, you'd have to say Mike Acevo had a disappointing year. I I don't think Mike played... I thought he was solid. I think he was our top try scorer, so that's difficult to argue with, but I think he can play better. Um you know, I'm a big fan of Wonga Blake. Um, I think he's still got his absolute best football ahead of him. He's a, he's a phenomenal athlete. Um, there are a couple, but when I say that, I don't want people to think, oh, they played poorly. They were solid, but I do see improvement in them for next year. So they'd be a couple that I see improving in next year. I'd like to see Fergo get his knee fixed and get 100% healthy because I still think... He's an incredible athlete, Fergo, and I, I still think he'll have a great year for his next year when he has a nice long off season. Particularly now that he's not playing Origin, I think I think he'll uh, he'll improve next year as well. But I'm not criticising those players as having bad seasons. I just think we can get a lot more out of them next year, and they, they're still going to be valuable contributors for us. And now keeping that, uh, you took that onto the, the the positive aspect of. Uh, seeing more out of them. We've got some players who have just been added to the Origin squad in Gutho, Junior, RCG and Nathan Brown. What is that going to mean for Parramatta to have those players competing in the highest level of football like Origin? It's terrific. You look at any premiership winning team and honestly in the you know 60-odd years I've been following um, Rugby League, um, there's hasn't that there hasn't been a Premiership winning team, there may be one or two that was did not have a core group of players that were consistent rep players either at New South Wales Origin level, Queensland Origin, or Australian level. And you need those players. So to think now that Gutho, uh, Campbell Gillard, uh, Junior Paulo, and Nathan Brown have gravitated to that level where Brad's put them in their squad, that's that's fantastic. It, 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 
premiership winning teams have rep players. And I know there's a downside when the, when the Origin Series is during the year, and I'm, I'm a proponent of standalone Origin. That's another issue. The point being, the best teams have Origin players, the best teams win the comps. Not only that, there's an educational element too. They're mixing with the very best players. They're seeing Luke Keary, Cody Walker, Boyd Cordner, um, James Tedesco. You know, these Jack White, these guys are elite. And they, it's whilst they probably know they prepare well, seeing them prepare well, seeing how they mentally, physically, practically approach football, um, which is, is, is again, it reinforces the importance of attention to detail and optimal preparation to go out and play. Near enough is a near enough is good enough is a good old Australian expression, but it doesn't work in professional sport. Near enough's never good enough. Near you, you have to be very clinical and have a great attention to detail. That's what these players will pick up when they go into these origin camps and you know, broadly speaking, that'll build enormous confidence. When they come back from those camps, look look what it did for Gutho last year. Gutho was eighteenth man, he was in the camp, Freddie continually saying what a great contributor he was and how great it was to have Gutho in the camp. Look at him coming back from last year and what he did this year. His confidence was through the roof. Um, he, Gutho sees himself now as an Origin squad player. He hasn't got on the field yet, but he came back to Parramatta knowing he's an Origin squad player and he he prepared and performed accordingly. And it was good to see that at the end of 2019, Junior Polo issued the challenge to his, himself and his teammates that to take the next step or, or to get towards the next step, the Eels needed to start getting into the rep squads. And and like you mentioned, Bernie, it's sort of broaden, broadening and deepening their skill sets through that skill acquisition and, and experience acquisition of the representative process. And then to see Junior back that up alongside Quinton Gufferson, Campbell Gillard and Brown, and even Ryan Madison, who I imagine would have been very close to selection for the yeah, I'm surprised Ryan didn't get a start there because I think, you know, looking at the back rows across the NRL, given that he's been in the squad before, similar to Gutho, was 18th or 19th man, I think Ryan deserved to get a spot. But Ryan plays like he's been in that environment. There's a confidence about how he plays that he, again, he's been exposed to that environment. He's been exposed to good systems and teams at the Roosters. These are all things that build that innate confidence where you go to games expecting to win, not hoping to win. Exactly, and and yeah, and so now they're going to put. It's another step in putting themselves in a position to succeed in twenty twenty one, which is you know fantastic. Now, right. if they get if they get on the field in an Origin game, next time they get on the field in the semi final game, they're used to that big, big time, mm-hmm. big pressure environment. And again, it's, it's getting comfortable in that environment. I'm going to ask you a, a fairly nuanced question here because the the full impact of COVID nineteen, not on just the NRL but across the world, is still unfolding, but on the whole, how do you think our franchise handled the impact of COVID-19 and what it meant to the, the stop and restart of the season? Um, I mean, this, this is on so many levels. Did you like our roster management through the injuries? Um, given that there was no reserve grade, do you think we should have had a, a greater rotation of players through the, the top 13 or top 17? Um, what were your big takeaways from this? Well, the first, the first thing to mention is it was a same for all things. Everybody, you know, there was a lot of debate around after the two-week break, do we need to start again or do, or do we not? I was a fan of not starting again. I was advised Parramatta had won their first two games. So. Um, but it's the same for all teams. So they all went about it in their own way. And my, my gut feel is that it probably wasn't all that different. Now, I noticed Wayne Bennett made a remark that, oh, South took it easy. And it looks like Parramatta flogged it. Well, the innuendo was that we flogged our players and came out, we are playing playing well early in the season after post-COVID, but not at the back end, which Wayne, with all due respect, wouldn't have a clue what Parramatta did in COVID. Um, 
So, you know, that, that's not a fair comment from Wayne. He's a great coach and, he's, you know, he's a, he's a terrific premiership winning coach. But, I mean, I think we, we did fine. If you look at post-COVID, we came out and flogged the Broncos in Brisbane. And so straight out of the blocks, we did well. By round nine, we were running first in the competition. So you say from rounds three through nine, which was immediately post-COVID, that we came out of the blocks flying. So how we handled COVID, you suggest, was pretty good. Now, in hindsight, blogging the Broncos is not the big scalp it was in round three, because you remember they were unbeaten after two games, mm-hmm. and we went up there and blogged them. Um, but, you know, in, 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 with the benefit of hindsight, they, they weren't that good a squad. So after nine games, we were first. As far as the player rotation goes, you know, in a 20-game season, you've got to win games. You've got to win every week. There was a big pressure on the, the entire club, Brad, and the players to get into fourth place. You needed to win. Now, certain clubs, like the Roosters, they had injury problems, which then they rotated players occasionally if they had a few niggles and left them out. You know, with the strength of their roster, they could get away with that. But from our roster, I don't think it was that badly handled. Andrew Davey came in and got some minutes. Um, I'm not overly concerned. You can second-guess yourself in these, or did we play this player enough? Did we play that player enough? We didn't play, you know, certain players in certain positions for enough minutes. You can you can actually get, you can confuse yourself. Keep it simple. If they're healthy and they want to play and they're fit to play, play your best team. And there's an old saying, the genius is in the simplicity. Keep it as simple as possible. If your best players are fit, they want to play, play them, unless the coaching staff think in their, in their wisdom that there's a there's an opportunity to rest a player uh, here or there. And we actually re- did rest a couple of players with niggling injuries at the back end of the year. Um, there was a couple of players that missed a couple of games there. And if it was a grand final, they probably would have played. Um, so I had no problem with it. I don't think it's a reason. I think everybody was in the same boat. And at the end of the day, the best teams, whether it's a 2014 comp, a 2010, a 20-round comp, sorry, 24-round comp versus 20-round comp, um, whether there was a COVID break, whether there was origin, all of that went out the window. It's difficult to argue the top six teams that were left standing uh, as of last weekend, they would have been the top six teams anyway. Um, so I haven't. I don't think it had any material impact on the overall season. So looking at this roster situation, the club's just announced the departure of 11 players and there's even rumours of another couple of the squad that are currently under contract, finding new homes. And there's also that great doubt over the future of Michael Jennings. With my calculations, we're actually starting to get close to just over 50% of the squad being locked in, or in other words, almost 50% of roster places needing to be filled. So there's obviously quite a bit of work that needs to be done on the recruitment front. If... You were in charge of the signings. What would be your priority signings? And should the Eels really open the first strings to fill any of those positions? Well, you know, the reality is every club in the NRL, outside of the ones that have been penalised, they spend all their money at the salary cap. It's very rare that a club doesn't spend their full salary cap. And even if they don't, it might be 100 grand here, 200 grand that they may be below, which, you know, in the context of a $10 million salary cap, it's not hugely significant. So bottom line is opening the purse strings is 
that used to be the way to look at it. Now is how do I get value out of it? If I'm going to spend ten million dollars, how do I get the best value for that within the within the surrogate? For example, you know, you might some people might like a player, but if you have to pay six hundred thousand to get them, suddenly if you're running a, a roster and the associated salary cap issues around putting a roster together, you may say, look, he's a great player, but he wants six hundred when really. In the fair income department, he's worth about 400 to 450. So you pass on that player, and that happens very, very regularly. Um, conversely, if you can go out, and this is where Melbourne uh, do it very well, probably better than anyone, they can go out and pick up the guy on 250 and get a $350,000 performance out of him. You know, for example, look at Franco Lee. Franco Lee's been to three or four clubs, hasn't really done much, always showed a bit of potential. Um, he goes to Melbourne, and I'll guarantee you, whatever they're paying you, they're getting more value for his on-field performance out of Branko Lee than his, than his salary cap amount, which is, that's the art of the salary cap. The art of the salary cap is to get value for money. Specifically coming back to the deals, you know, there's some there's some obvious things we need to do there. But if, if our top 13 to 15 players are still going to be there next year, and when the 13 players run out in round one next year, I don't think there's going to be a lot of surprises outside of his replace. If, if Michael Jennings, and we wish Michael well, if he's not playing, then the big challenge there is who's going to be at left centre, right? But otherwise, you can pretty much know who's going to run out. So the key with, for our club is to make sure that these role players, and these are the, you know, most of the 11 players leaving, they're our role players, great contributors and great clubmen, and we, you know, we wish them well. But the reality is, this is where Melbourne are good. They have a core group that they then build out their role players so well. So if you look at our club, we need a, I think we need a legitimate backup hooker for Reed. I think um, if we want to optimise Reed's capabilities, and I'm a huge fan of Reed, we need someone to support him. I would personally look at potentially bringing in a different style of hooker as a backup. Um, maybe a different body shape, but we need someone to back up Reese. We need some replacement front rower, one or two. See, we're losing Kane Evans, Stefano Atokamano, Penny Terrapau and David Gower. There's four middles we're losing. We need to replace at least one to two of those. Um, back rowers, we're losing Davey and even Tackers, who could, he could pinch hit in the back row. So we need one there. We need a backup half five eight now that Jay Field and Reese Davies won't be part of the squad. Um, we need someone that can hold their hands up in the case that Mitchell or Dylan goes down. And that's, you know, it's a tough game. There's always the likelihood. You know, Mitchell and Dylan both missed a lot of games this year, which means our effort to finish third when your halves have missed a number of games was was was, was very good. But we need a backup half by eight. Um, and, of course, if Jenko is not available and, and, and we would need to replace him, that's further exacerbated by the fact that Jane and Sam, who must have been looked at as that type of player a year ago, uh, Jane won't be with us as well. So they're the areas that I'd be looking at. I haven't had a look at all the off-contract players, but I don't think you're going to see a major signing with the Eagles like, because our top 13 to 15 is pretty much in place and they're contracted. Um, it's all dependent on our salary cap position, and, and, and you know, given that I'm not there anymore, I, I, I don't know that in enough detail to suggest where we should be dedicating the money within those priorities that I've just outlined by position. But again, I'd be focusing on quality and looking at players that you said, you know, you may be a six out of 10, but if you come here, I'll make you a seven or seven and a half out of 10. And if you get them for the right price, you can then get that value for money. Value for money in the cap is imperative. People say, you know, fans will say, oh, buy this player, buy that player. And then 
if you actually told them that's why I want six hundred thousand dollars, it's like, oh, that's outrageous. It's not as tempting all of a sudden, isn't it? Yeah. <laughs> so you know the salary cap and the roster management, and the salary cap is a real art. There's a scientific element to it, but it's a real art because the good clubs get it right. They make good judgments. You have to make a judgment um, on well, I can get that player for two fifty, but I think, for example, if Melbourne buy a player like Franco Lee, let's say they'll pay him for two fifty. Craig Bellamy will look at him with his coaching staff and say, he can do a job. I know his skill set. I've met him. He can buy into our mentality. I can make him play like a 350 player. Frank O'Leary's been playing really well for me. Certainly better than he has at any other club. Mm-hmm. I, yeah. uh, just a, a question on what we were talking about in terms of the, the, the middle uh, needs for middle forwards, Bernie. I, I wanted to look at one of our players who I believe is uh, who's one of our edge players, who I believe is looking more like a middle player to me nowadays, and that's Sean Lane. And I'm wondering whether we have, uh, whether he is now um, a middle forward, is a middle forward option, and whether there is a, a potentially a need to recruit someone in the back row. Well, I thought about that, and look, Sean Lane's, He's, a, he's what I call, when I was at the Roosters, we had Adrian Morley. And Adrian Morley could play back row. He could run an edge. He could also play in the middle. And he was no shrinking violet. He was happy to mix it up in the middle. <laughs> um, <laughs> Just a bit. One of, the, one, of the, one of the great players we had at the Roosters, and there's no question the success of the Roosters at that time, you know, well, he clearly had Brad Fiddler. But I'm telling you, that within the playing group, Adrian Morley was as respected as anybody. My point being, Adrian was what I call a one-and-a-half player. He wasn't always a front-rower or a second-rower. He could, he could mix and match. Now, those players... Murat and Iacore's got a bit of that in. Sean Lane clearly has a bit of that in. Sean, um, he could play in the middle, no question. And he could he can play an edge, and he's played the edge very successfully for us in the last two years. Now, when I look at um, Sean, the try Gutherson scored the other day was Sean playing like a legitimate edge. He ran off... He ran a hard straight line off Dylan Brown. He poked his nose through and offloaded. That was classic edge play. Sean Brown's, uh, Sean Lane still has the, the the athleticism and the physical capabilities to play on the edge. I like players to play on the edge as long as they can before they go to the middle. But in five years' time, Sean's not going to be he's going to be beaten up a little more and a little slower, a little more battle weary. He'll probably want, he'll probably go to the middle. But I think at the moment, particularly when I look at I don't see any dominant edge players out on the market that could replace Sean at left edge. We're losing Andrew Davey, who could potentially have done that. So I would still look to play Davey, I mean, sorry, um, Sean Lane on the left edge, Ryan Madison on the right edge. And most of your good clubs, they play their edges 80 minutes. It's a specialised position. And when you play your edges for 80 minutes, it, it reduces, it gives you a lot more flexibility around how you rotate your middle, depending on you know, the, the factors in the game that determine the fatigue factor of your middle. So I like the edges playing for 80 minutes. I still think next year that Lane's a, 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 an edge because I think he's a much better option than anyone we could go out and buy at the moment. Now, we just spent a good five minutes or more talking about how the Eels are juggling a lot of their top 30 balls and they're all in the air and we're not really sure where they're going to come down. But even so, is it possible to predict how Parramatta are likely to perform next year like based on that? With with so many like spots up for grabs, with um so many you know depth options to fill out. Look, I, I'm I'm remarkably optimistic. I think you know clubs have to make choices. They have to let players go. And if it's time for Parramatta to rebuild what I'll call our our support players, 
And I agree with what Brad and Mark are doing. I think it is time to turn over a number of those support players. And, you know, sometimes it's a like Tackers or David Gow. They're getting a little older. It's time. They've been great contributors to our club, but it's time to do it. Um, I'm not overly concerned because, as I said before, I could probably tell you now the top 13 from the top. I could tell you 15 players that are going to be in that team round one next year, all things being equal from a fitness mm-hmm. perspective. Um, and that team that runs out next year after a good preseason, um, and, and knowing that they are consecutive playoff team, knowing that they finished third this year, I'd be that, that group should be remarkably confident of being very, very good next year. So I would be looking at next year optimistically, albeit you know the disappointment's very raw now on this season. You've got to have a macro view and a big picture view, not make major decisions. Um, now, even, and let's look at Mitch Moses, right? Now, Mitch, I'm a fan of Mitch. You guys know that. Mitch Moses is still a work in progress. Mitch is athletically gifted. He's a smart kid. He's a um, he's a great contributor to the Eels. I've had people ask me, oh, you know, can we win the comp with Mitch? And, and you know, do we need to change Mitch out? I said, take a deep breath. Step back. Number one, Mitchell will continue to improve. Number two, he has great athletic ability. Number three, he's committed to the club. Number four, he's contracted to the club. And if you look outside, there's no one available that could do a better job than Mitch anyway. So I'm a supporter of Mitch. I think he'll continue to improve. And I think him, Dylan Reed, and Gutho are still developing. That's important cohesive element you need within the spine. So I see Mitchell continuing to improve. I'm I'm very happy with our spine. I think it's, it's really good. So I don't see a need around that. I, I don't think the fact that, you know, 11 players leaving it, it's a good, you know, it's a good newspaper headline and it looks spectacular, but it's what good clubs do. You need to move players in and out. You look at the Roosters over the last four or five years. They've lost Connor Watson, Aiden Guerra, Sean Kenny Dow, Mitchell Pearce. You know, they've lost, if you look back at the list of players they've let go over the last three or four years, you're continually churning your roster. And that's what we're doing now. We're in a space now where we're looking at those those support roles and those young players. You know, clearly within those players that come in, I'd love to see us go and target a few really good young players, 19, 20 at other clubs. Now, it's difficult to do because good clubs, they're smarter now. The recruitment processes are more sophisticated around the club. The good players are tied up. But we need to be scouring everywhere. Um, to fill out these support players because they will play a critical role because there will be injuries and there's, there's you know, there's a, there's a couple of bench spots there up for grabs next year and uh, also potentially if Janko doesn't come back that left centre spot. Well, Ben. Yeah, so it's, we're really talking about a, a scenario where uh, Parramatta is not only a, got some strength going forward, but there's also a few opportunities that are open to players that are that are looking to maybe reinforce their uh, or kickstart their NRL career or or get a new start with a club that's on the rise. Absolutely. Yeah, we we will enter next year internally with a belief that we're a top four club. I think we are a top four club. Um, you know, there's a few issues there we need to address, but hopefully they'll be addressed. We need to get this roster management right. But I'm sure Mark and Brad and Peter Sharp are working overtime on scouring. Uh, the rugby league landscape, trying to find where these players are. Um, but th- there's always opportunity there. And if I was a good young player, if, if Parramatta came knocking 
I'd be certainly giving them an audience if I was a manager of a good young player. We are now, I think, developed our club and um, to a point where you want to be a destination club. I know when I was at the Roosters, if we wanted to talk to a player, no one ever knocked us back for a discussion. We didn't get every player we wanted. And I'd like to think now that Parramatta's in a position where we have a bit of status and cachet within the league where players will always have the discussion. Whether they, you're not going to get every player, and you know various things like where players want to live, who they want to be, who they want to play with, whether they see you as what sort of team they see you as, where they fit into your club positionally, etc. All those different factors. So you, clearly, you don't get everybody that you want. But Parramatta now is what I would define as a destination club in the sense that if, if we want an audience with a player, we, Parramatta would usually get it. That's why the stability around the club at the moment that we've had for the last three or four years has been a good thing. Um, and then, you know, we've had good performances off the back of that. And I think Brad's reputation around the league is very good in that. And other players talk in complimentary tones about, about his coaching ability. Was not much more to say, I think, Bernie. You've, you've been so fantastic. And it's always a pleasure to get a, a clinic on um, rugby league knowledge and experience from you. So I can only extend my sincere, sincere thanks, sorry for um, joining us on the tip sheet and you know, and blessing everyone with your knowledge of the game. Thank you so much, mate. That has been my pleasure, boys. And we'll talk soon. Okay, look forward to it. Keep well, Bernie. Yes. Well, mate, as always, that was very illuminating, getting to spend some time with Bernie and uh, digging into his wealth of rugby league knowledge. Certainly quite a bit that was covered just then. I hope our listeners enjoyed what Bernie's been, not only what Bernie's been able to provide for our listeners over the last few weeks with his previews, but uh, just then in terms of his uh, analysis of the season just gone. And yeah, I think he echoes a lot of our sentiments in that there's obviously a very strong core of the team here. Like I said, there's you know as many as 15 spots already locked in for your, your top 17 moving into the 2021 season. So it is important to flesh out the roster, but of those 15 players, there's a lot of room for improvement and growth, which is encouraging. So, you know, it portends well for the future. Obviously, you know, it's not a given that the Eels going to improve, but it, it's the the possibilities and the opportunities are there, which is fantastic. What I really appreciated from what Bernie had to say today too, mate, was that when we are commenting on Parramatta through our podcasts or, or what we write, we're taking the perspective of of, a, of supporters with some of the biases that that entails. I like to think that we're logical in our breakdowns of what transpires in games, but with Bernie, we've got we've got two advantages there in what he brings. First of all, you've got his background within the club, so he's he has a he has a knowledge of the players, the staff, and what happens within the organisation. But now he's on the outside looking in and he brings his wealth of experience in the game as an, as a player, as an administrator, basically just as someone who's been around the game for decades and is no longer within the club. So he's, he's on the outside looking in, as I said, and even though he's he's got that link and, and perhaps a, still a little bit of looking at things through blue and gold eyes, he's able to give, let's say, a more uh, realistic appraisal of, of where he sees things at 
rather than the sort of what has been a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction in the media from some journos and perhaps also on the social media platforms from some supporters. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and, yeah, obviously Bernie brings that context of being a, an administrator at the highest level, which also helps facilitate some fantastic opinions and insights. But I do think it helps keep us more grounded in our approach to evaluating games now, having spoken to Bernie on a number of times. Well, I must say the uh, we obviously have our ideas about where what we'd like Bernie to discuss, and we, we talk about that prior to recording the podcast. But then he raises some ideas and, and, and thoughts that, perhaps we hadn't considered prior to that or or he might go into things in a little bit more detail than we had considered before. And as I said, I find it quite illuminating listening to him as someone that's involved in the discussion with him. And I'm sure that our listeners are enjoying what he's able to bring to the table uh, via our podcast. Absolutely. All right. So you want to wrap it up here, mate? Yes, I think – I think this is um, a good point to wrap up the podcast for today. I've really been enjoying where the podcasts have been going lately. It's This is obviously a, an aspect of TCT that we're developing more and more, and I really also appreciate the feedback that we've been getting, not just on the website, but through the various social media platforms. I've had lots of people that have, that have uh, sent private messages via Twitter. Um, people that have my number have been sending me text messages or calling me up and and uh, saying that they've really been enjoying it. So, look, it's it's fantastic validation for what we've been doing, mate. And my thanks to you for everything that you're able to do in making this this happen. Because certainly we wouldn't we wouldn't have a podcast without forty twenty. So. Uh, my thanks to you and um, to the listeners out there. Uh, stick with us because this won't be our last podcast of 2020 and it certainly won't be the last podcast uh, going forward. It's going to go to bigger and better things next year and um, I look forward to uh, bringing that to everyone. That also brings us to an interesting junction in that 60s and myself have a lot of ideas for what to do with the tip sheet and some of it is natural and organic insofar as a, a 2021 preview and predictions. And then once we get our top 30 and roster finalized, we can do a, a dive into what the Eels have done in terms of recruitment. But if um, our listeners and our, our supporters have any ideas for content they want to hear in the tip sheet, I'd be more than happy for them to drop it into the comment section of this post that'll be up on the Cumberland Throw just to see where people want us to go with this. Because like I said, it's a, a pretty organic thing. We can take it wherever you want. And we've got ideas for 2021 in terms of uh, expanded podcast content. But in the meantime, hit us up with some ideas. Thanks, mate. And uh, I'm certainly looking forward to hearing the feedback on this episode and uh, ideas going forward. Absolutely. As always, guys, thanks for stopping by and listening. We really appreciate it. It's literally two idiots shooting the shit every week. And, and in this case, we've had, we happen to get one educated person on the podcast for once again and Bernie. So um, we do sincerely appreciate you guys taking the time to listen to us. Um, stay safe, uh, keep well, and keep dropping by TCT. Catch you guys.